Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be about the effect of early early life experiences on adopted children. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both adoption and infertility, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one or even a friend are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's HeartBeat program. To learn more, you can go to heartbeatprogram.com or you can talk to your oncologist or reproductive endocrinologist and get more information as well. Now, I have a favor to ask. If you are a fan of this show and you want to help us grow, please rate it uh, on iTunes. That's uh, one of the best things you can do for us uh, to help others find us. You can go to our uh, the radio show page on our site, which is, again, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. You can click on the iTunes button and then give us whatever number of star rating you want. And if you have an extra minute, we'd really appreciate a written comment as well. And I do mean it when I say we truly appreciate it. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either adoption or infertility three times a week. A recent blog you might enjoy was one on calming the what-ifs, parenting a child that doesn't fit the mold. Uh, That one is really from the heart. uh, It's one that uh, I I really would love to get your input on. Uh, You can join in the discussion uh, um, in the comment section of that blog at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Uh, This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Nightlight provides international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation adoption. We also have Children's Connection, an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. And we do appreciate uh, you supporting those who support us. Today's show is going to be on the effect of early life experiences on adopted children. Our guest is Dr. Charles Nelson. He is a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and one of the leading experts on how early childhood neglect, abuse, malnutrition, institutionalization, and prenatal environment affects kids. Welcome, Dr. Nelson, to Creating a Family. My pleasure to be here. Well, 
I uh, I should tell you that I have been a longtime fan of both your research and uh, and 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 you and what you do. So I am particularly thrilled to have you with us today. And and I think I must be speaking for our audience because we got a lot of emails um, in advance for uh, for you to answer. I have had to group some of them, uh, or I I've, I've not necessarily grouped, but I, I can't read all of them. But I've picked the ones that are most representative. Uh, and so we're going to be covering a lot of water today, which it's a very broad topic. I am going to start with one a question from Rosie, and it's a fairly general one, but I thought it was a good uh, kind of beginning question. She says, we are adopting from Kazakhstan as soon as they start taking dossiers. What are general developmental warning signs for parents who want as healthy of a child as possible to be aware of during the 30-day bonding visitation period? Um, I assume she didn't say, but I think most kids, at least in the past, Kazakhstan's been closed for a while, but uh, most kids have been in institutions, uh, orphanages in Kazakhstan. So just in general, what are some things that parents uh, can take note of that would indicate a child that is generally developing emotionally and physically as you would hope for them to be? I think part of my answer to that lies in uh, how old the child is at the time of the adoption. So it's going to be very different if it's a one-month-old versus a five-year-old child. So keeping in mind our need to be sensitive to the developmental status of kids at different ages, if, for example, they're two and a half or three, then we're going to be focusing on their gross and fine motor ability, their their language ability, and then in the social-emotional sphere, it will have a lot to do with how they interact with both familiar adults and unfamiliar adults. But if they're much, much younger, it'll change. So before I go on, can you give me a handle on where you think I should be focusing in terms of age, or should I try to cover, say, the first several years of life? I think, yes, and unfortunately, I didn't think to email her back and ask that specific question, and I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, and because Kazakhstan is relatively new, we don't know. In most yeah. international adoptions, we know that most children are 18 months to two years when you're getting them as young as possible. So, But, but this would, I'd also like to, well, let's, since we're talking, yeah, let's say uh, uh, the first couple of years of life. All right. Okay. So let's let's uh, take two scenarios: a, a baby less than a year, and then a baby uh, two or three years of age. So if they're okay. less than a year, I think you're not going to obsess about whether they're walking, for example, or talking, because you don't see that in kids who are less than a year. But yeah. you will look at things like uh, their head control, their postural control. You're going to look at particularly. Uh, does, does their face light up when you interact with them? Do they have, it sounds rather coarse to put it this way, but is there a light on upstairs? Often you can look into a baby's eyes and get a sense of someone's home or not, to use that <clears throat> colloquial expression. So the question is really, can you detect the potential for a connection with that child? Now, then there are going to be the obvious physical things that you're going to look for, and that's what a pediatrician would look at, right? So it would be, do you see anything unusual about the way the face is formed or, you know, the legs or the feet? But that's really the domain of what a pediatrician should be checking for to make sure that the child doesn't have cerebral palsy or another serious motor uh, problem. But more in the domain, it's hard at that age to look at cognitive issues, but you can certainly look at social-emotional issues. So as they get a little bit older, one of the things that is a common 
a hallmark of kids who spend time in an institution will be what's referred to as indiscriminately friendly. So an example there would be for a two or a three-year-old, they may just crawl into the lap or walk off with a complete stranger. Those sorts of things are actually, uh, I don't want to say normal, but it to be expected for kids who come out of institutions. But that's the kind of thing that you you know you need to try to deal with once they're in a home. So it's adaptive in an institution. It's maladaptive out of an institution. For the older child, you want to see get some sense really of their language. Are they if they're three, for example, they should be speaking their native language at least in rudimentary form. Uh, you want to see if they're looking at you when they interact with you. Are they looking away? Are they interested in people versus objects? Those are the sorts of things you would look at as kids get to be two and three for the most part. I should probably stop there, otherwise I could take up the entire hour with just addressing this one question. <laughs> well, that tends to be the problem with a lot of these questions. I think it might be helpful if we move on. We've gotten, um, we have, we've received questions that I think have roughly grouped into interuteral exposure, institutionalization, malnutrition, uh, uh, stressful pregnancies, uh, and then uh, uh, just kind of the, ad- the effect of adoption in general. So I think let me just jump into uh, interuteral exposures. Uh, here's one from Tara. She says, I don't, know how, I don't know much about the care my son's birth mother got while pregnant. I think there may have been use of marijuana, but don't know for sure. My son is smart, much more social than me, and developmentally normal at the age of two. Can syndromes that are the result of drug use or prenatal trauma pop up later with no signs early on? Then she goes on to say, I have read that even children who are adopted from birth are much more likely to get RAD, reactive attachment disorder, and the like than children who were not separated from bio parents. Are there signals I should watch out for? All right, so let's answer her first question is uh, her son, she doesn't know about any interutero exposures. She suspects there may have been some. He is uh, practically perfect. He's the Mary Poppins kid, practically perfect in every way, bright and social at this at age two. Should, are there something that she needs to be on the lookout for uh, as he ages? Right. So let me address the first question that she asked in the first question, which was, are there things that can show up later that weren't there earlier? And the answer to that is yes, but it's probably a bit unusual, and it may depend on whatever it is that the child was exposed to. The nature of the question is sort of asking about drug exposure, say substance use or alcohol, things like that, but we probably should not disregard other exposures like uh, elevated lead levels or um, other PCBs, mercury, things like that. But let's put those aside for a moment and talk really about drug exposure. So I think that there's going to be a continuum of things that we would be concerned about, uh, some more so than others. I think probably things like modest or mild to modest marijuana use during pregnancy is much less insidious than uh, heavy alcohol use during pregnancy. Uh, very heavy alcohol use. The, the difference between alcohol and the other drugs is that alcohol can leave a telltale physical sign. That's the fetal alcohol syndrome that we've all heard about, which leads to a very distinct set of, 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 of uh, features in the face. But other drugs, cocaine and heroin and marijuana and like, don't leave those physical, don't leave that sort of signature that we see in alcohol. But remember, there's two things to keep in mind. One is, uh, well, three. One is the the exposure itself. What, what was it that the child was exposed to? When was the child exposed? Things that 
happen very early in pregnancy have very different developmental consequences to things that happen very late in pregnancy. And I think the last that we, we need to remember is that kids are resilient and can bounce back. And so there are studies demonstrating that even kids exposed to alcohol prenatally in good environments can overcome some of those deficits. So the double whammy would be the child exposed to alcohol prenatally and then who is being raised in a horrible environment. They're going to have the worst outcomes. So that's sort of the brief version of an answer to the first question. Do you want me to go on or should we try the second? Let's go ahead to the second. And she's asking about attachment yeah. I tell you what, let me let me go ahead and go we'll go ahead and answer well, that. Well, let one me now. just yeah. quickly nail the first part. Uh you do not as a rule see reactive attachment disorder in kids who are adopted at birth. The issue there is you usually see reactive attachment disorder varying as a function of length of time in institutional care. The longer they spend in institutional care, the greater the risk for various attachment problems, including reactive attachment disorder. But a, a child placed very early, certainly in the first year or year and a half, is much less likely to have this than a child who spent more than, say, two years in an institution. And do you see a difference if with children are uh, – is, uh, is, is the effect mitigated by foster care? That's an excellent question. So let's first take a step back. There are really two types of reactive attachment disorder. There's the indiscriminate type I described a moment ago. Now remember, there are kids who can behave indiscriminately, but they don't have reactive attachment disorder. That's when you sort of cross the line into uh, what would be considered a form of psychopathology, the reactive attachment disorder. But many of the kids won't have that. They'll just be indiscriminately friendly in some cases, and that can go away over time. The other type of reactive attachment disorder is referred to as inhibited, and these are kids who, instead of being indiscriminate, actually will freeze, uh, almost become statue-like in, in the presence of, say, a stranger. What we found in our work in Romania is that if kids are placed before 22 to 24 months, it com almost completely eradicates the inhibited type. Um, kids placed before that age show a great decline in the indiscriminate type, although as late as eight years, you can still see a little bit of that. On the other hand, uh, kids placed after two have a greatly elevated risk of both types of reactive attachment disorder, although the disinhibited or the indiscriminate type is more common. So the, cutting, the break point would be around 20 to 24 months, let's say. And of course, and then we, this is the topic for another show. But what is particularly troublesome is that the direction that uh, international adoption is moving um, is children are being placed after that um, after that age. So that is a frustrating thing about international right. adoption right now. Sure. Um, let's see. We've all heard that a child loses some number of months in development for every month in an institution. What is the current research? That always seems perhaps a little a little over uh, over simplistic. Uh, what's the current research showing on that? Well, the, the, to be very specific about this, um, it's about physical growth. That's what they lose. So the concern is there are data that that argue that. For every one month spent in an institution, a child can lose a month or so of physical growth. This work comes from Dana Johnson at the University of Minnesota. And the amount they lose varies as a function of the 
we'll, we'll say the quality of the institution. Uh, a truly horrendous institution, it might be they lose one month of growth for every month in an institution. Uh, in a less bad institution, it might be they lose um, one month of growth for every two or three months in an institution. But we can't apply that rule to behavior. It's not as though we can say you lose um, developmental milestones in other domains based on length of time in an institution. And that's how I was kind of hearing the question. But if I've misheard it, you should correct me. No, you heard it correctly. All right. So yes. it's, it really is specific to physical growth. Okay, yes. And I think that's an important uh, distinction. Thank you. Uh, Rosie, who was asked, uh, we talked about before uh, adopting from Kazakhstan, wants to know how Kazakhstan compares to other countries in terms of the level of alcohol exposure. Uh, and she's speaking from a, a general, you know, from a general standpoint. Obviously, you can't say anything about any child that you've not seen. Well, not only that, I can't unfortunately say anything about Kazakhstan because um, I don't have those figures in front of me. I mean, we know that the former Soviet Union, all of the countries that comprise the former Soviet Union, uh, as a whole, you you see uh, prenatal alcohol exposure being more problematic than in other parts of the world. But I really don't know about Kazakhstan specifically, so I can't comment on that. And it's been closed for a while, so you wouldn't have seen children necessarily right. who have come from there, right? Exactly. Uh, Julie uh, wants to know, she says, my adopted children were exposed to cocaine, heroin, marijuana, and presumably alcohol in utero. They are six and seven and don't appear to have any lasting effects from the exposure. How might the drug and alcohol exposure affect them if they experiment with drugs and alcohol as teenagers? Are they more susceptible to addictions? Whoa. So... (laughs) Every parent's concern, let me tell you. Yeah, exactly. So let me start with the good news and then move to to basically saying I'm not sure I know how to answer the second question. So the good news (laughs) is that there was, you know, a lot of concern 15 or 20 years ago about so-called crack babies. And the issue were babies exposed in utero to crack cocaine. It turns out that in the longitudinal studies that have been done, those children look so much better than anyone expected. Is my memory? I could be wrong about this, but my memory is Rolling Stone is the one that got this going by interviewing teachers and reporting on teachers' impressions of kids in their classrooms. But when you actually look at the research, uh, it's not that these kids get off scot-free, but that cocaine exposure certainly doesn't lead to the horrendous effects everyone expected. Um, we, uh, for things like heroin and the like, these are usually issues dealt with in the newborn period. You know, you're concerned about seizures in the kids and, and the like. But as a rule, the, the kids may have, the kids may themselves as, as newborns be addicted, but they go through withdrawal and then that, that's over. Uh, there are some long-term effects of these things, uh, all of these things. Alcohol is probably the most insidious of this group, actually. But I think that what we need to keep in mind is that the brain is remarkably plastic. And so even if its circuitry, the connections among brain cells, has been impacted negatively by these um, exposures, they can be compensated for to some degree by a, a good family. So the example there would be, let's say that these drugs increase the risk of impulsivity or a problems in attention. A structured environment can often be just the thing for kids who have problems in impulsivity and, and inattention. So if they raise the risk of things like ADHD, they can be offset 
by a certain type of environment. Now, the second question is uh, out, out of my realm of expertise. I think the concern people have had is, are you, in a sense, priming the, the well by exposing the brain to these highly addictive substances prenatally? Will that, in a sense, change the reward circuitry of the brain? I'll come back to that in just a moment and elevate the risk of drug, and u- drug use, say, later in life. Um, I don't know if we know the answer to that question in adolescence yet. Linda Mays, a wonderful uh, developmental pediatrician, child psychiatrist at uh, the Yale Child Study Center, has looked at these very kids. I think she has argued that in utero exposure can in fact change the reward system. So there's a a brain chemical called dopamine, which is very involved in reward. Reward meaning what, what do you derive pleasure from, for example? And the concern would be if it shifts the reward system, so you need to seek uh, things that provide more uh, juice, so to speak, then you might be more risk-taking. But I think that's going a little too far with this question because what this reader really, this caller really wants to know is if a child has been just fine through childhood and now they're 14 or 15, are they at greater risk for drug or substance use? And my, my, Probably uh, the answer I would give, keeping in mind I'm not an expert on this, is that I'd be more concerned about other variables like ADHD uh, and some other forms of mental mental health problems in kids than I would be just the in utero exposure. So we know that kids with ADHD have a higher risk of substance use problems as teenagers. Uh, they're more they're more uh, impulsive. They they take more risks and the like. So if a child is not showing any of those signs through childhood, then my bet is that their risk in adolescence is no different than any other child who who didn't have that prenatal exposure. And would it, it, it do we know we have often said that that alcoholism or the the predisposition to to become addicted is a heritable trait. Yeah. Um, that's a diff, I, that's a different issue. Yeah, so is there is is that something that we but in this case it, we certainly know that people who have been raised in an alcoholic family or in a, in a family where the parents are drug addicted uh likely have a higher likely have a higher incident of of substance abuse themselves. But what about children who have been totally removed from that environment and are being raised right. in a non-alcoholic environment? Do those children who right. come from biologically uh from parents who have uh, uh, if there is an addictive gene, or let's just say they're alcoholics or drug addicts, um, is there a hereditary Im- impact of of addiction? Is is addiction her- uh, charitable? Sure. Well, so so the answer to that question is that there is some degree of heritability in uh, substance of abuse, but we have to be very cautious when we look at this scientific literature because it's almost always confounded by environment. So many of the studies have been done have looked at the transmission of substance use problems from one generation to the next, but they often don't control for the fact that they're brought up in households where there is substance use. And so it could just be as easily be the environment. Your question asks a much more profound issue, addresses a more profound issue, which is that if you have uh, parents who are substance users, but you're now raised in a family with no substance use, does that still mean that you are at risk for substance use? And I think the answer to that is that genes are not destiny. ADHD, autism, uh, bipolar, depression, all of these problems 
have a, a heritability component to them, but they are not destiny. So that even if the genes elevate the risk for something, the environment is probably what will determine whether that risk or that vulnerability gets expressed in some way. So the classic example that I've used for years in class would be children born with phenylketonuria, PKU. In the United States, all kids are screened for PKU at birth. If you have this single gene defect, you can't metabolize uh, an enzyme called phenylalanine. If you look at a can of diet soda that has aspartame in it, that's phenylalanine, and it'll say phenylketonurics beware. So this amino acid, sorry, I said enzyme, but I meant amino acid. This amino acid, which exists in many foods, uh, winds up in the gut of kids with TKU. They, can, they will eventually become profoundly mentally retarded, intellectually challenged. The solution, you, you screen for this at birth. You put these kids on a diet low in phenylalanine, and they're, they're fine. The second is a classic example in the world of genetics. It's a mouse that inherits a propensity to become fat, to have really ugly brown fur and to develop cancers. It's called the agouti mouse. If, however, you treat the pregnant mother with a special diet, the offspring don't get cancers, don't get obese, and they have white fur. And it's referred to as epigenetics. So they have the gene for these things, the obesity, the cancer, and the like, but the genes don't get expressed by altering that pathway by diet. So it's a long-winded way of saying that Yes, uh, the risk of abusing drugs is in part genetic, but that the environment can <clears throat> essentially greatly influence whether those genes ever get expressed. Okay, excellent. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about early life experiences and how they affect adopted children. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility, infertility communities on the social networks, so why don't you join us? On Twitter, you can connect with us at Creating a Family. On Facebook, there are three ways you can connect with us. One, please like out the Creating a Family Facebook page. The second is you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. It is a closed group. Um, however, yeah, you just need to ask and uh, we will be admitted. Uh, and last but not least, you can connect with me personally. I am at dawn.davenport1. All right, our next question uh, is by Shelley. She said, our daughter was adopted at age eight-ish from Ethiopia and joined our family two years ago. She has both speech and learning delays, so communication is limited but getting better. We didn't learn much about her early childhood experiences from our birth family meeting or from her adoption paperwork, and she rarely talks about her Ethiopian life and relationships. My question is this. Every once in a while, she will seem to remember something out of the blue, i.e. the name of a friend from the orphanage or Ethiopian food or something along those lines. And then she perseverates on it for several weeks. Now, let me stop here and say that I did not know what the word perseverate means. So let me define that for everyone. It is a psychological term that means over hyper-focus on something that is not happening now and you continue to over-focus on it. Um, or at least that's what my the, my uh, online Websters said. To continue, Shelley says, my husband and I welcome her memories and life stories before adoption. However, the perseveration on the same piece of information is difficult to manage in a busy household, and we end up setting limits on it. 
can Dr. Nelson offer any guidance on how we can support our daughter as her memories reveal themselves while also limiting her obsessive thinking? Uh, we also wonder about the lack of more memories since she tells the same few stories over and over and over again. Thanks, and we love the show. And so, this is the very last part. They, they wonder about the, the lack of more memories? Is that what they She say? doesn't have many memories, but the ones she has, she continues she repeat. to yeah, repeat over and over again. Are they positive memories or negative memories? Do we know? Well, the ones she gave example of were not negative. Uh, remembering a friend, remembering food, so that, so that there doesn't appear to be negative. It's um, at least the one she gave an example of. Yeah. I mean, I think the, there's a couple of responses to this. First, to pay close attention to the context in which these memories are being retrieved. So are they... Uh, did they just appear out of nowhere and there's no context and you scratch your head thinking, well, you know, what made her think that? Or was there some context? Were you, was she talking about her day at school and kids she was playing with when this cropped up? If it's the latter, I think that's certainly nothing to be concerned about. If they're uh, basically contextless and they're coming up out of no, with no context or almost inappropriately, you're t- discussing the weather and this comes up, then the question is, to probe a little bit more and ask her wh- why she's remembering this now. I think that you want to make sure these don't become intrusive memories. That's why I asked if they were positive or negative. Uh, intrusive, of course, would mean they're getting in the way of her functioning. They're making her anxious, for example, and she's reliving things. But it doesn't sound like that's it. I mean, you see this in kids, for example, in Sierra Leone who are, have grown up as child soldiers and they can relive the trauma. But that doesn't sound like what's going on here. So I think I'd be a little curious what's prompting or facilitating her retrieval of these memories. Sounds like they're mostly benign. Uh, you know, this happened, that happened. Um, if it, though, becomes, if, if it takes the place of more recent memories, that's a little bit uh, concerning. So she doesn't remember what happened two weeks ago, but she's remembering these things. I think the other thing would be if there's any sign in school that she's having a problem with learning and memory, then maybe to have her evaluated because to make sure that she's not suffering from a problem of making new memories, whereas her old memories are intact. One thing you'll notice in, in the elderly is that they will find that they are have a harder time making new memories, but their old memories are very, very, you know, in, in, in place. If you see that in kids, then there are some things you want to look at. So that, that would be my suggestion. And, and her hyper-focus on it, could that be also somewhat explained by her immaturity and her uh, speech delays uh, in that she just tends to, she's, she's in a rut where she can continue to focus on this and doesn't really have the language or the maturity to kind of realize that it's inappropriate? Um, with, or is that, that, that over-focus, is that something that is more of concern than just immaturity? Well, it depends on, on how over-focused she is. I mean, if this is happening many times a day, then that kind of rumination or perseveration is, is you know, concerning. And so you should certainly first discuss it with uh, the child's pediatrician and then from there perhaps somebody else. But if it's very occasional, um, well, there's two things. If it's very occasional, then I, it's not terribly concerning. The second is, has this always happened since she's been adopted or is it starting to happen more now? One thing I can't remember from the way you read the question is she was eight when she was adopted, but I don't know how old she is now. 
No, she was six when adopted, and oh, she is eight she's now. eight now? I had that oh, no, I'm wrong. Okay. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm wrong. I apologize. She said she was adopted at eight-ish, uh, right. and she joined our family two years ago, so she's 10 now. I apologize. At 10 now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so what we'd want to find out is if uh, she's been doing this on and off since she was adopted, that's one thing. If she didn't do it at all until now, that's another um, it could be a developmental stage that she's at a new level of maturity and that's bringing with it some of these older memories. So I think I've given enough for the mom to get a sense of, yeah. um, you know, what to worry about, what not to worry about. All right. All right. This is from Anne. Could Dr. Nelson give us some of his best recommendations of what we can do for our kids that come from institutions, as in, what are the five best things I can do for my son who spent two years in an institution? And especially for those of us that live more remotely, what can we do for our kids when we don't have access to adoption trauma attachment therapists in our communities? Thanks so much, uh, Dawn. I am so looking forward to this show. So uh, for people who are adopting institutionalized kids, are there specific can, – can you answer that? Are there specific things that they need to do other than what all parents would be doing? Yeah, so one way to approach this is to talk about what are common traits among kids who come out of institutions, particularly if they spent more than the first two or so years there. The the risks for things like attention deficit disorder and anxiety and attachment problems, sometimes but not always diminished intellectual functioning like lower IQ, are uh, things that we see more in kids who've been placed later. So the recommendation then would be to build on relationships, make sure you emphasize that, to provide structure in the environment, which will help minimize. See, kids, kids aren't very good at regulating their attention and regulating their emotion and the like when they're little, and they come to learn to do those things by us helping them. So a structured environment can help that along. A chaotic environment is almost... Uh, is in a sense, can prime the, the system for kids who are out of control. But a structured environment is very good for them. By the relationship building, I mean uh, emphasize attachment with the primary caregivers, say mom and dad, and if there's daycare providers or you know things like that, grandparents, any number of things. And to try to not reward indiscriminate behavior. So if the child is becoming... Indis it behaves indiscriminately towards all kinds of strangers, you don't want to reward that. But you do want to reward being behaving in a positive way towards the primary people in the child's life. Uh, in terms of speech and language delays are not uncommon, and I think emphasizing, you know, making sure a child has been evaluated so that at whatever age they're at, their speech and language is appropriate for that age. And if it's not, get them into speech and language uh, intervention. Those are the primary things. As they get a little bit older, you can be a little concerned sometimes about executive functions. So that would be problem solving and cognitive flexibility, being able to change your mind and things like that. And But those don't usually crop up until preschool and elementary school age. And there, again, it's just a matter of does the teacher, for example, report that the child isn't doing as well as the other kids, and then it might require some intervention in those domains. But attachment and ADHD and anxiety and executive functions are probably the, the four biggest issues to, to be alert to, not to worry about, but to be alert to. 
And if a child has executive function issues, that uh, not solving problems uh, particularly well, not being able to uh, change their mind and once they get going in a direction, um, what are things other than the structured environment that parents can do to help with that? Oh, so uh, first of all, there are formal interventions that will emphasize executive functions. But the second is that there has been almost a plethora in the last few years of new treatment trials for for training executive functions in little kids. So there's work by uh, Helen Neville at the University of Oregon, Adele Diamond at the University of British Columbia, Sylvia Bungie at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, Phil Fisher at the University of Oregon, also Mary uh, Dozier at the University of Maryland. All of these have been focused on ways to build executive functions in, say, preschool-age children. In some cases, perfectly fine, typically developing ca- uh, children. In some cases, kids in the foster care system or child protection system. In some cases, kids who are growing up in poverty. But uh, I would encourage, I think, the, the reader, or the, sorry, the listener, to sort of explore some of those as as well. But I do think that if a child is thought to have some problems with executive functioning, a neuropsychological evaluation will reveal what those are, and often they can then make recommendations on how to deal with those issues, besides just a structured environment. Excellent. You are listening to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Infertility, and we are so glad to have you with us on this Creating a Family show, talking about the early life experiences and how they affect adopted children. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Now, I'd like to move now to malnourishment. We have a question from Jennifer. She said, my daughter was adopted at 21 months from an orphanage in Vietnam and was malnourished. She weighed only about 18 pounds. She was a very picky eater until recently. She is now six years old. She seems now to have an insatiable appetite and often cries for food. She is actually getting a little heavy. I am wondering if this could possibly be from early deprivation. I just don't know why it would be only showing up now after she has been home for four years. Thanks. Yeah, so that's interesting. So uh, she was adopted at 21 months. So it's one thing that parents will often report from kids who spend time in institutions where food might be scarce is that they'll hoard food, for example. The parents will find food hidden in the closet, hidden under the bed and things like that. Um, Kids will become very protective of food. But usually you see that shortly after the adoption. So it sounds like this mom is saying that the child was fine until fairly recently at the age of six. And uh, that is hard to attribute to the early experience. I mean, I would have expected her to show a lot of this in the year or two following her adoption. But for her not to have shown anything for, say, three or four years and now it's showing up makes me wonder if there's something else going on. If this is a child who's also engaging in self-injurious behavior as well as eating a great deal, then that's certainly something that she would want to have checked out, I think. But if this didn't show up until now, I'm a little hesitant to attribute it to those first 21 months. Okay. 
Now, this is a question from Tiffany, who is an adult adoptee. She said, I am curious about the effects of disrupting an infant's environment, even if the care is adequate or even nurturing. I think I had adequate care, probably even optimal foster care, but I'm curious about what effects uh, removing a child from his or her birth mother has on an individual, even under the best of circumstances. Um, And I'm going to extend that a little bit to the, there's a a theory, the primal wound theory, W-O-U-N-D, uh, in fact, there's a book by that title. I have blogged on it. We've done a number of shows on it. And not to uh, uh, Tiffany's question is really getting at that. And that it is. And, and I'm curious to you uh, to ask you because you see a lot of research on adopted people, children as well as um, the ones that are longitudinal go into adulthood. Um, are adopted people more likely to have certain Issues are certain or carry a scar from the fact that they were removed uh, at and let's say even at infancy. Uh, Tiffany, I believe, was adopted at a very young age, although she was uh, in uh, foster care for a short time, I believe, before adoption. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I have to confess I'm not familiar with this primal wound theory, but I will tell you just from the title that I'm a little skeptical. So let's first just briefly discuss this issue of attachment. Kids before six months really haven't formed much in the way of an attachment. Attachment starts to develop after the age of six months. And sort of six to 24 months is that sweet spot for forming attachments. What people have observed is that if kids have been deprived of forming any attachments in that period of time, then even when they're adopted at three or four, for example, they're going to have a harder time making, uh, well, forming attachments with their caregivers and making friends and the like. But if people, if if kids have, let's take this listener, for example, if in those first years she did have attachment figures, she doesn't remember, of course, because we don't usually remember much before three or four, but if she did have attachment figures before in those first few years, then that's the foundation upon which she will then subsequently build new attachments, including both regular relationships with friends and intimate relationships with, 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 uh, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends and spouses and the like. So... The idea that there's a permanent wound by being separated is really not borne out by the science. It's more that has to do with your history of having formed some attachments in those first two years of life, or really the sixth to 24th month or so. What we, I think, and others have found is that kids who spend more than two years in an institution are at a higher risk for having problems with attachment. Kids placed before that are at lower risk. But in this case, if, if if your listener wasn't in an institution, let's say it was a domestic adoption and she was in a a home where she did form a relationship with her mother, for example, then I think that probably will explain the fact that uh, she's a normally functioning adult. There are some adoptees who believe that uh, just the act of being removed from a birth mother is a natural thing and that children are, uh, are, are damaged just by the fact that they were removed. And they're speaking specifically of infant adoption, newborn infant adoption. Uh, yeah. Tiffany wasn't. So that was, I think that's the... Uh, yeah. Just take it I, to I the mean, extreme. Go ahead. There is no, no scientific evidence to support any of that. This sounds a lot like 
um, a theory that has been derived from some clinical evidence, but not scientific evidence, particularly the idea that the earlier in life the separation accrues, the worse the outcome. And so, as I said, it's what's going on in those first two years that's important, but not what's going on in the first few months that's important. Uh, I think that there are countless people who've been adopted in those first two years and beyond that who are who are doing just great. And so to imply that just because they were separated from their birth mother leaves a permanent wound is, is just false on the face of it. How would scientific evidence show that? Would, 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 I'm trying to imagine, a, uh, would it be through a study of, of large numbers of adopted people to see if they have sure. a greater incidence of, of, of any form of insecurity right. or, or anything else? Is that, is, would that be how right. scientific evidence I mean, there, there are several ways to do it. I mean, that, that's one, of course, is to, is to do a long-term study of kids who've been adopted at different ages and who come from different environments. So they could be adopted because their parents were really great parents, but they just couldn't take care of another child. They could be adopted because they were abandoned. They could be adopted because the child was taken away from the parents. All of those things play a background role in what will happen later. And so I think that we need to be careful about this word permanent. Uh, There are not that many things that are permanent in the sense of uh, you can't to some degree, mitigate them or compensate for them, particularly if they happen early in life. The other way people have looked at this is with twin studies. There are you know, very famous studies of twins, identical twins reared apart. Uh, they don't do that anymore, but they certainly did that uh, in fairly great numbers you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago where they'd have MZ twins. One was brought up in a family in England and one brought up in a family in Australia, and then they get reunited as adults. Tom Bouchard at the University of Minnesota did a lot of this work. So that's the other way one, you know, people have looked at these, at these issues. And then finally, there are studies with monkeys, which for purposes of attachment provide actually a very good model. And monkeys that are... Um, deprived of who have a mother for those first months of life, which is the equivalent of years in the human, and then are separated are fine because they had the opportunity to form that early relationship. And I think that's the critical issue here. Yeah. This this next question is not the same, but it's it's uh, it's also from an adult adopted person. Sandy writes, um, please ask about prenatal impact of a mother under stress. And what could be more stressful than considering adoption? Tie that okay. in. Go ahead. Tell, tell me what the last part means. What could be more stressful than considering adoption? Uh, as I understand her question, a woman who is pregnant and is considering placing her child for adoption oh. is oh. inherently under a, a great deal of stress. It's, a not, opt, it's not an optimal uh, 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 situation for any woman to be in. And, and one would guess would be that the woman is experiencing a great deal of stress if she is in that position. And Sandy goes on to say, and tie that in with what happens uh, to any mitigating effects of good postnatal care. Or right. she's asking about post-adoption depression. Then she goes on to give a little more, and I'm, I had thought I was not going to read this, but I think I'm going to read, uh, she goes into a little more detail because I think it might make it easier to answer the question. She says, from conversations with other adult adoptees, it seems so many of us have intense levels of anxiety that are triggered too easily. Of course, each is unique due to genes, but it has a consistent result that she's seen. 
Then you add to that the maternal separation at birth and any effect that would have. I think it could also play a role in why adoptees see mental health professionals more than non-adoptees. Personally, my mother, and I think she's replying to her birth mother, apparently was a worrier, but I have and but I have always been the extreme, zero to full panic and a flash from what others consider a, minim, a minimal uh, exposure. Uh, a minimal, a minimal uh, something that's not big makes her respond very big. So I would have both the genetic vulnerability compounded by the in-wound stress, compounded by whatever care or lack thereof I had for almost three months post-birth. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I think Sandy's question is: it is a, uh, d- Does a uh, expectant mother's stress level affect the yeah. uh, uh, infant, the fetus, right. and then later so, the infant? Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly a lot in this uh, in this uh, uh, question. So let's start with yeah. that one. Okay. Um, we know a fair bit now about the effects of maternal stress on infant development. So. The classic example of the last five or six years, of course, is the mom who's pregnant and her husband is shipped off to Iraq or Afghanistan, all right, Um, or who gets a cancer diagnosis. There are any number of things going on here. We know that women who uh, give birth to children that it was an unwanted pregnancy that that will, as the as the person who wrote the question asked, is a is a very good way to think of conceptualize that as a stressful experience. However, what that means is that. When we think of stress, we we think of uh, anxiety, and we need to separate those two out. Anxiety and stress are very different. Uh, second, when it comes to stress, what we're concerned about is the body's response to stress, which is to release certain hormones, such as cortisol, and some of those hormones at high levels can have an effect on the brain. And in a sense, it can reset the brain. But we know from animal studies that those animals reared in a good environment after birth can, in a sense, undo that damage that was done prenatally. So I think that for a woman, for example, who it's an unwanted pregnancy, she goes through the whole pregnancy, then she gives the child up at term, and the assumption that it was stressful. First, it may not have been stressful for everybody, but let's assume that it was a stressful experience. If the child then goes into a wonderful home, then I think I would not be concerned about the child's long-term development. I think that that home will offset that prenatal exposure to elevated stress hormones, for example. the the We're... When you read the longer part of the question, we got into some very different territory. So I'm going to leave it to you to tell me what parts of that you want me to try to address. Go ahead and try to address. Uh, um, I think that would be worthy of uh, of addressing some more. That is her own. Uh, exactly. Well, go ahead. I'll let you. You've heard it. I'll let you uh, summarize yeah. I mean, and, and respond. So. We all, as adults, have a tendency to attribute whatever is wrong with us to something that happened to us early in life. It's always good to blame your mother for most things, for example. Yeah, and um, as a mother, and I really hate that. I just exactly. want to Exactly, and I'm hoping yeah. my mother's not listening as we as we say this, right? But <laughs> yeah, that isn't always the case. Or we can blame genes. So this caller is saying basically that they're very anxious, and her birth mother was anxious, so therefore she could be anxious because she inherited the same genes that gave rise to the anxiety in her birth mother, or it was the act of being adopted that was the stress her mother was under uh, under underwent when she was pregnant with her that pre that in a sense set her brain on a path to anxiety. Both are possible. We'll never know which one it is. Um, some people we know that 15% of 
babies are what my colleague Jerome Kagan has referred to as behaviorally inhibited children. And kids who are very behaviorally inhibited or very shy can be more prone to anxiety when they get older. So we have in this person's case also the possibility that she was a shy child. Now, shy children in some environments are inclined towards depression, but uh, sorry, towards anxiety, but in other environments do fine. And so it all depends on her adoptive family, how they dealt with these things. So in this person's case, it's hard to know. It, we certainly know that there are there's some heritability factor to anxiety. We know there's a big environmental factor. We know that it could be things that occurred during uh, her mom, birth mother's pregnancy. All of those things could have conspired to predispose her to anxiety. But I think of those, I would attribute the least to the stress of her birth mother's pregnancy. I think it's more likely the genes coupled with uh, perhaps the way this young this person was built, you know, her temperament at, uh, right. as an infant. Yeah, because I think you know, we, there have been some fascinating studies looking at, at infants across the board, and they can they, their temperaments are absolutely are, right. are vary, and they fall into categories, and we and they right. can be uh, looked at. Now, and again, I'm kind of going back from a research standpoint. It, to to determine if if we assume that uh, most which your point's well taken that this may not be a completely accurate but it's certainly uh, assumption but it certainly seems common sense to say that most children uh, at least in the U S uh, where a birth mother uh, is or an expectant woman is making the decision in a pregnancy whether or not to place the child uh, we can assume that uh, most children in that are most women in that situation are experiencing a certain amount of stress. Right. And so how would we know uh, have there been good studies of of adopted people long go, to follow throughout life to see if there are uh differences that we can say as a group that adopted people uh Sandy is implying that adopted people as a group uh, and the groups that she sees of adopted people are more uh, have more anxiety than others uh right. i have also heard uh from uh that that from adopted people that they believe that uh, uh the universe of of, of of adoptees tend to be less secure more more insecure has there been any longitudinal research that has looked at not mental illness but just uh, yeah mental issues and 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 sure. Can we make generalizations about the universe of people who were adopted? Right. So my my disclaimer, I suspect that there are such studies, but I'm not familiar with them. So I would be um, – I'd mislead everybody to, to to say something when I really don't know the literature. But I will say the following. Let's assume for the sake of argument that both the things that you said are true, that there's a greater propensity towards certain forms of mental health problems, for example, or relationship issues. We don't know. We, we don't know to what to attribute that. Is it the fact that they're adopted begs the question of why they were adopted. So if they're adopted out of the child protection system, for example, then was that because they were maltreated by their parents? Was it because the parents had a, mental, a serious mental health issue or a substance use issue and they were removed from the home? Uh, was there Were there prenatal factors that contributed to this? So there are a host of variables that can contribute to the outcome of people who have been adopted. And I would be surprised if, as a group, adults who've been adopted didn't differ in some ways from people who were not adopted. But remember there's a continuum here of 
uh, different levels of functioning. And I would suspect that the distributions overlap. To put that in English, that let's say you find a little bit more anxiety among those who are adopted than those who are not adopted, you will still see even higher levels of anxiety among people who are not adopted. So they overlap to some degree. So we we're, we may be quick to say that there is something about those who are adopted that's different, and that could be true. Again, we need to look into this some more, but we have to figure out why that might be true. And I think there are probably hundreds of thousands of of people around the world who were adopted and are very, very, very successful, happy, high-functioning adults. And it would be misleading to think that there's something off about people who have been adopted in general rather than some individuals. I know that I have read some research. I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brain to uh, remember. Uh, the The research that I'm specifically remembering was done, I believe, it was longitudinal studies, but it followed the the people until their early to mid twenties, I believe. Uh, I don't remember. If, I don't believe it followed them beyond. And uh, as I remember that research, uh, there were not universal distinctions they could make because these these people, uh, adolescents and adults and children as well, were compared to control groups of non-adopted people as well as. If I remember correctly, uh, they're non-adopted siblings, and there were not universal distinctions that could be made across the anxiety was one of them, uh, just a whole host of things that they were looking at. I believe that is on our adoption research page, and and, uh, the word adolescent is in the title. Uh, Mental health of adopted adolescents, I believe, is, is the title. We have time for one more question. This one is from Becky. Uh, they are getting ready to adopt from foster care, and they want to know what questions they should be asking when they meet to review the children's file, uh, specific as to what type of pre-adoption environments should they be paying attention to, uh, what type of pre-adoption environments would be the greatest to impact children later in life that they need to know about. Okay, so let me let me start with referring this person to uh, a report just issued by the what's called the Institute of Medicine, an arm of the the government that issued a report I think in September October on maltreatment. So the first issue to to find out is if the child's in foster care, are they there because of a history of maltreatment? And if so, how old was the child? What was the nature of the maltreatment? How serious was it? How long did it go on? Things like that. And not surprisingly, you'd find that the more uh, insidious the type, the longer it goes on, the earlier it starts. Those are the things that correlate with less good outcomes. Um, on the other hand, if it's not maltreatment, and I'm, accused, I'm, I'm including both abuse and neglect here. Now, let me add quickly that neglect is worse for kids than abuses. This is not to endorse abuse, but children who are profoundly neglected have worse outcomes than kids who are, are, who are physically abused. Um, and the reason for that is most of the brain development after birth depends on experience. So in the case of abuse, the experiences are abnormal, but, they're, but they're, it's embedded in others that might be normal. But in neglect, everything is lacking, so the brain doesn't know what to do. Now, moving away from maltreatment, then the other issues, of course, would be what kind of home was this child born into? Did the parents have 
if they know about both parents, did the, parent, did the parents have a history of severe mental illness like schizophrenia? Was there substance use during pregnancy would be another, another consideration. But I think I would probably most focus on what was the home environment like? And then the second issue is if they were removed from the home and put in foster care, what was that foster care home like? And the last would be, was it just one foster care home or multiple? Just briefly, the last issue was very important. Kids with multiple foster care placements, as a rule, have less good outcomes than kids with, say, just a single placement. Uh, very good. That's excellent. Thank you so much. I'd like to take a moment right now to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show, as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. All Blessings International is an adoption agency with offices in Missouri and Kentucky, and they work with families throughout the U.S. placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant infant program. And we also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Charles Nelson, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Uh, For those, I will be blogging on the topics, uh, at least one of the topics, uh, that we uh, were going to, uh, that we've talked about today. So if you would like to uh, participate uh, in a discussion, we would love to have you uh, join us. For those of you who would like more information on uh, Dr. Nelson, uh, you can visit him at his, uh, both, he's got two things, both, uh, I tell you what, I'm going to give his Facebook, the Facebook page for his lab, which is titled, We're uh, Boston Children's Hospital Lab of Cognitive Neuroscience, and you can find that on Facebook. It's facebook.com, obviously, and the title would be, oh, I just blanked off of it, uh, Where Kids, no, kid, no, yeah, Kids, I'm sorry, Where Kids Help Kids, all one word, Where Kids Help Kids, and that is a Facebook page uh, and you can find it find it there. You can also, I, I'm not going to read the uh, Children's Hospital URL. You can also uh, find, you could probably uh, search, it's very long, childrenshospital.org, uh, and, uh, which is uh, where he practices. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.